100% of OR teams use a checklist and conduct a debrief. Mortality rates have dropped by 35%. An economic return of 80,000 hours annually due to a reduction in the hours spent on each case. That translates into $4 million saved annually. $3 million extra dollars are also earned through increased throughput. But perhaps most importantly, an estimated 500 lives per year saved across the state. Today I'm talking with Dr. Michael Rose from McLeod Health in Florence, South Carolina, and Kate Hilton with us from Hanover, New Hampshire. Dr. Michael Rose is an anesthesiologist and the Chief Innovation Officer at McLeod Health, and Kate Hilton is the lead faculty for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, or IHI's Leadership and Organizing for Change virtual program. She's also a consultant for Rethink Health. I'm really excited to be here with Michael and Kate to talk about two subjects that may sometimes be not as exciting to everybody else. One is pre-surgical checklists. When I tend to talk about that with people in hospitals, I often get an eye roll, and people can be very, very skeptical about their value. Talk to them about post-surgical debriefings, and there's dread and fleeing the room for more important topics. So Michael Rose and Kate Hilton have dived into this topic with gusto and courage and done a lot with it. Michael and Kate, could you tell us a little bit about where you started and what got you interested in checklists and debriefing in the first place? Dr. Michael Rose, if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about that. Well, I found myself in the position with three main tasks that I had to achieve. One, as a team member, as an anesthesiologist, is taking care of patients and wanting to continuously do better and to be part of a high-functioning team. Uh, surgery is a very high stakes, high risk, and we want to continuously get better. I also had the role as the operational leader in the surgical division. And there I had responsibilities not only for the quality and safety of the division, uh, but also for things like flow, efficiency, productivity, and uh, all matters finance. And the operating room can be extremely expensive um, and high risk financially as well. Finally, as an officer of the, of the hospital and the system, being responsible for complying with the numerous regulatory requirements that we had, chief among them at that moment in time was to comply with the mandated use of the checklist and we just weren't there. We weren't making very much headway. I'm imagining, uh, thinking about some of the anesthesiologists I work with, um, you've shared a little bit with me, that as an anesthesiologist, you can be quite skeptical about any use of time that doesn't seem extremely valuable. And I know that a lot of people, uh, as you say, feel a lot of resistance to doing anything with the checklist on the one hand. On the other hand, you have this formal responsibility to ensure this compliance, and it seems like that's kind of put you between a rock and a hard place. So tell me a little bit about that. And it was taking a lot of oxygen in the room because the conversation about needing to have these conversations was, was itself erosive to the relationships in the operating room and having to measure whether people were having these conversations or not, the checklist. We had an interesting 
visitor to the operating room early on, individual who was a pilot. He was the chief safety pilot for FedEx. Hmm. He came into our environment and he told us about a system in the FedEx system where over the course of any day, uh, all of the events that occurred in the system worldwide were recorded, curated, and then when people came in to work the next day, they would be able to see across the system everything that happened that was a, um, a miss or a near miss, uh, which was very enlightening. So he had us do an experiment. He said, let's go around the operating room. Let's talk with the teams about what happened today that could have been better, should have been better, had we only known. And we started writing a list on large sticky note pieces of paper uh, posted on the main hallway to the operating room. And by the end of three days, that hallway was completely covered with sticky notes of events that were happening in the operating room. And it, it struck me um, and our team at that time that the debriefings were rich in information and compelling in, in uh, the kind of opportunity that they created by illuminating what was happening to people every day. And that drew a lot of us in to this work on the checklist. A lot of us in the simulation world have thought a great deal about debriefing in formal simulation contexts, but more and more of us are being drawn into conducting or helping our colleagues conduct clinical debriefings, whether it's in the perioperative environment or ICU or clinic. And generally, I think people feel like debriefing is kind of nice to do, sort of, but time-consuming. And on a one-of basis, sometimes something really useful comes out of it, and sometimes I think people sort of feel as though maybe they wish they'd use that time differently. What I'm hearing from you, though, is almost kind of an electrifying aha from collecting all this data across the OR, and that surprises me and I think maybe surprising to some of our listeners. Can you unpack that a little bit more? Yeah. So a great example from week one, we had a uh, patient who is in a positioning device uh, for a total joint replacement and the positioning device failed during the case. And that patient slipped off the operating room table and was uh, effectively caught by somebody before hitting the ground, averting a catastrophe, bad enough that it happened. But in that one case, in that one example, it was striking how events of that type could happen, some as significant and compelling as that one and dangerous, and others that were repetitious, maddening, uh, evoking distraction. The system in the operating room functioned like word of mouth, nothing formalized. Uh, that you might have participated in a case like that and learn something really important. And in that case, the team taking care of that patient who, who slid off the table, they learned something about the management of positioning devices that they organically learned and viscerally felt and created and then taught others around the operating room. And there was some magic to that. We had been used to sitting up on our management floor of the operating room, driving down policy and driving down ideas. And here were events where people in the room were saying, listen, what happened to me today? And then telling their friends and colleagues and coworkers in the operating room, did you hear what happened today? And this is how we've solved it. And that caught fire. 
I'd like to bring Kate Hilton in here to help us sort of interpret what you're talking about, uh, Michael Rose, which to some degree sounds to me a little bit like the power of stories. Kate, I know you've uh, really focused on expertise in community organizing and social movements for health, and I'd love to hear what comes to your mind when you hear a story like this about the power of stories. Thank you very much. Yes, my work is in community organizing. Uh, it's a complex social science that draws on multiple methods, which fundamentally are a set of leadership practices. And these are designed to help enable diverse actors, in Mike's case, himself, other surgeons, nurses, technicians, and others, together be transformed into a collective that work together to mobilize themselves and their colleagues toward a common goal. And in this case, the goal of using the checklist. And one such leadership practice in that work is the use of story as a technique that helps people access their intrinsic motivation and their, their feelings around change. When you hear a story as specific and clear as the one Mike just told about a patient who fell off the operating table and you have an image of, oh, what happened? What, what did the team do after that? How did that happen in the first place? And what could be done in the future to prevent that? To allow people to share those specific examples in a debrief practice with, with courage and transparency, as opposed to you know, a sense of fear and punishment. And you're talking about the use of narrative as cognitive mapping to allow us to find our way through to an answer of the question, that, that question of why it matters that we would do the debrief in the first place, why it matters that we show up at work as providers and as caregivers for patients, why it matters to us that we feel responsible for a patient outcome, and why we got into the practice of caregiving in the first place. And that those motivations move us to emotion. It's emotion literally in our neurology <laughs> that, that moves us to action. And so to help people access their emotions through stories helps move them to action as leaders and as team members and others. So I'd love to follow up on that theme of emotion, motivating cognition. A colleague, Laura Rock, often talks about emotion before cognition as a way for us to understand each other better, care for each other better. And Michael, returning to the tension between the sort of eye roll and skepticism about checklists and about debriefing, your formal role as someone who had to ensure compliance with that, and this bridge that I'm starting to perceive between the kind of unmotivated, do I really have to do it kind of feeling, and these deep emotions and feeling of meaning that Kate is alluding to here, don't really get how that works. Can you tell me a little bit about what happened? Yeah, I think that people felt heard when they conveyed these stories. And the fact that we were recording them and being very public with them, uh, not only were we being public with them in the operating room, but we would take, we would take the debris from the teams and uh, share them every morning the next day with the entire surgical management team. We shared them with the senior executives and with the board. Early on, we brought three board members into the operating room. These were not clinicians, they were lay board members, to see and hear what defects and events in a high-risk environment 
can mean to people in terms of distraction and just the wear and tear factor and the discomfort that, that you can have when the conditions aren't as they could be, as ideal as they should be to take care of the patients. And, and then seeing that in the 70 to 100 cases that we were doing every day, 25 or 30 percent of these debriefs at the end of each day were coming back with uh, conveyed events, created a pretty compelling um, story of the need for change and the need for investment, um, resources, and time to manage this. And so that helped us move to needing to comply with the checklist because it was regulatory mandated to, we had a ethical and moral obligation to our patients and to our friends and colleagues in the operating room to make our workplace safer, better, and talk about joy being out of reach. You're in an environment where a quarter of the cases that you're experiencing on a given day had something that you believe could have been better. That's a wear and tear. I'd like to rewind us a little bit just to understand how you got from FedEx pilot visiting you to a place where you were doing 100% of cases with the checklist and 100% of cases with this post-procedural debrief. And get back to the question of buy-in a little bit. You and Kate Hilton have ended up being so thoughtful about that. When I talk to people in our simulation courses, when I travel the world talking with people about trying to get simulation programs going that are addressing really important quality and safety trends for their hospitals or really important educational goals for their nursing schools or medical schools, the biggest thing I hear is I can't get my co-faculty to buy in. I can't get them to come and teach. I can't get them to see the importance, the students maybe don't buy in. And it seems to me that you and Kate Hilton have really cracked the nut on thinking about buy-in. So I wonder, Kate, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your take on what Michael and team did to move from a sort of stopped point to this incredible momentum and positive feedback process that's happening where the findings from the debriefing are encouraging people to do it more. I love what Dr. Rose and his team did. First, they started with themselves and they got really real about whether they were in, whether they were bought in. They asked themselves a question much deeper than just buying is, are, are we ready to own this? So Dr. Rose recruited a leadership team. So not just himself trying to like convince or cajole or just get the CEO to mandate the use of the checklist or, you know, lead another training or put out another marketing material, but instead recruited colleagues across the stakeholder groups affected by the change. You know, when people are asked to change their behavior and, for example, use a checklist, it's very normal and common psychologically to resist change. We have a lot of emotions about fear, fear of loss of reputation, fear of who's responsible for the patient, fear of doing something uncertain, fear of communicating differently with my colleagues that can get in the way of our ability to commit. And we have to be invited beyond this buy-in to a place of our own exploration in activating, you know, my agency or my colleague's agency in joining me and enough exploration that allows me not just to buy in, but to commit. And in his case, Dr. Rose invited colleagues from anesthesiology and these other practices 
uh, nursing, you know, technicians in the OR, even a, a board member to join him on a core team that wanted to co-own that commitment, pass buy-in to ownership. What they did was they asked themselves why this mattered. And they listened to each other's stories about why this work mattered to them. And they told universal stories of patients who were family members who had had medical error occur to them, loved ones who, who deserve better, uh, neighbors and friends, patients that they had worked on them where uh, something was preventable and it affected how they practiced or the team morale. And so they shared with each other these stories and through the use of these stories, realized just how committed, in fact, and motivated they were on the basis of their values to do this work together. And through that, got to know each other, not just you know, people who had worked together for over 25 years who would not have these types of conversations with each other about their deep motivations for the work they do. And maybe before we share any more about his process, we could reflect a little with Dr. Rose about what that meant. Well, making this transition into operational leadership, there was something really striking that I've learned about myself. And the, the world of anesthesia is one of the most comfortable places that one can be. You have all of the vital signs. You're controlling the consciousness of the patient. And you in that world can control all of the factors and can substantially then define the result. Now I found myself on the operational side of an operating room with 900 people and thousands of patients coming through and clear evidence of opportunity for improvement and realizing that that approach within anesthesia of having a cockpit, being able to modify the patient's response to surgery and control just about everything to get a result could not work in these teams. And that was something that was my own learning about what it's like to be on a team and how mutually dependent we are, all of us. While I might have had my set of issues to manage up there in my world in anesthesia, looking across these experiences for people in the operating room and what they were encountering, it's pretty clear that none of us were as successful on behalf of our patients or as effective as we could be with our own sets of tools. It needed other people. By sharing these stories and connections with people, that learning rose right to the top and real fast. So um, Kate mentioned talking about why you all went into this work, uh, sharing stories of family members who'd had adverse events and so on. I don't immediately see the connection between improving quality and safety metrics and personal stories. And yet I intuitively get that there must be something important in terms of tapping into people's passion. How did that connection play out for you personally? Well, there's no greater feeling of helplessness or hopelessness that one can have as a clinician. If you feel that something you were trained to do and somebody depended on, to an extreme degree, they, they place their well-being in your hands. There's nothing more painful in, in not accomplishing that on their behalf. That's very difficult to live with when you see this opportunity to be better for everybody that we take care of not be realized. I think hearing from all of us, having felt that, we all got into the field 
different ways, but really fundamentally because we wanted to be able to take care of people. And here we found ourselves falling short. That was a um, universal factor and something that I think compelled everybody. I might just add that narrative is how we learn to access sources of value that afford us emotional resources to act. So when you talk about buy-in, if people need to access emotional resources to buy-in or to act or to commit to, for example, using the checklist or leading this effort, story is a place where we access sources of value, the things that we care about. St. Augustine wrote, it's one thing to know the good, it's quite another to love it. And it is love that enables us to act upon it. So we really lost without this kind of source of information. Neurologically, Martha Nossbaum has done research on people with damaged amygdalas whose brains are otherwise intact. And the amygdala controls emotion. And people with damaged amygdalas, they can use the rest of their brain to reason options ad infinitum, right? But they cannot make decisions because decisions rest on value judgments and value judgments require emotional information. Story is fundamental to, to all human um, families, faith traditions, cultures. They all teach through story. And it's our own stories of hurt and why we want to improve things, as Dr. Rose and his colleagues shared, as well as stories of hope and why we think we can improve things in the first place. And so by accessing those stories and those values, it not only motivated them, but then as they went out and they implemented their strategy, they engaged ultimately 900 colleagues in sharing stories about why they care and why they do this work. In addition to many other implementation strategies around building relationships on the basis of shared values, using really smart network strategies to co-design across this community of health professionals and, and you know, to do the work of adapting and action and testing and improving the process for themselves based on the, the things they cared about and how they wanted to implement it. But story was a starting point. And it's a practice. It's something that anyone can use uh, and can get better at, can structure and share with others. And so um, one thing that Dr. Rosen and his colleagues did it particularly well was apply that and not only in the work of engaging one another, but also in the use of the debrief and on a daily basis, using story as a way in which to debrief and continue to connect and sustain the motivation of the staff taking the checklist forward over time. So they were meaningfully using it and sustainably using it. And this was interesting in these one-on-one conversations as we were recruiting our, our team was uh, branching out, each of us trying to recruit four or five or six colleagues. In the one-on-ones, we did this experiment. Number one, why are we called to do this work? We pre-filled in reasons one and two. Well, we want to be the best functioning team. We want to have the safest possible operating room. And then we asked people to enumerate their number three, four, and five. And as we went across these diverse groups, There were clear differences there, and that was important. The surgeons, for example, time commitment to their work, the time pressure, that was to them, well, I'd participate in this work if this work can help me uh, get some better control of time. So really important that in this work, we had to design elements that we thought could recover time for the surgeon or else they weren't going to buy in. Meanwhile, right next to them in the operating room, 
for a group of people, and I'm, I'm stereotyping a little bit, but a nurse in the operating room, the last thing the nurse wants to talk about is doing something in an operating room based on time. That's not their ethic and not their approach. And so if we came out of the box saying, well, the reason we're doing this work is it's going to help us with our turnover times and we're going to be more productive and we're going to be able to do more cases over the course of the day, they'd be checked out. Very quickly, it became clear the needs and motivations of the people on the team were variable and that the design of the work had to factor that in. So part of what we're talking about here I use the rather unsophisticated term buy-in, and Kate Hilton, you've been helping nuance that to focus our attention on ownership, doing things that I deeply care about and value as a, as a provider. And what I hear you talking about now, Michael Rose, is what uh, we in the business world might call a value proposition, which is the value proposition for the surgeons was, can you get me more time? Can you have my time be better spent. The value proposition for the nurses might be something different. Can I feel like I'm taking better care of my patients? The value proposition for you particularly or another profession might be different. And so what I'm hearing is to activate people's intrinsic motivation, which is part of what you write about, Kate Hilton, to have people feel like they have the power and courage to make change. We have to help them tap into the things they care about the most and show how what it is we're doing helps them do things they really want to do. What Mike is also adding is a lot of listening, right? He was asking, what do you care about? To each of the stakeholder groups, figuring out their values as well as their interests. So if, if a surgeon said, I care about you know, saving time, and a nurse says, I care about advocating for the patient. That's really important data, especially if you're seeing that across your stakeholder group as a pattern. Those are the interests through which he then was connecting in real relationship with people, real conversation face-to-face with folks. What opportunities the checklist offered them to meet those interests. And it was then through a mutual exchange of committing to using the checklist together, testing it exploring it, seeing how it would work to help you save time, to help you better advocate for the patient. The checklist, it was not seen as a burden. It was seen as an opportunity so that people could live into the things that they not only cared about, but the things that kept them up at night, their interests. This was a way in which to co-produce and co-design in authentic relationship with, with the stakeholders affected by the change, the ones using it. And that took a leap of uh, faith at the leadership level of the organization, because what it meant was we're not going to judge uh, success or failure here by the percentage of cases that were effectively debriefed or the checklist was used, although without doubt we felt that pressure to have that occur. Instead, we said the metrics of this work, what we're going to focus on, what we're going to publish, and what we're going to drive, we're going to be the mortality rates, the throughput of the operating room time, uh, in particular for the surgeons. When we save time in the operating room for the surgeons, there were some other things that were happening that were positives. Like everybody else got to get home to their families. 
not the least of which were the patients and their family members. It could have meant the difference between driving home after dark for uh, some elderly patients, driving home when the pharmacies were still open so they could get their post-operative pain medications. So we tried to create as much visibility to the outputs that were potentially affected by this work beyond compliance with the checklist. And that required some patience and and uh, comfort at the leadership level of the organization all the way and up through to the board, uh, given that, that these improvements were not rapid, that this took time building the kind of coalition that was in play here person by person. Kate Hilton and you have sort of described this process of meeting one-on-one with small bunches of people, three or four people, each person was responsible. That sort of started the ball rolling. And now what I'd like to talk a little bit about is once you've got that virtuous cycle going of insights being generated from the debriefings, problems being caught early by the checklists, and those findings being propagated out gradually, it seems to me that there's some self-sustaining quality there that I know all of us who are interested in starting and maintaining organizational change see as very desirable, but few of us get there. So could you talk a little bit about, if, uh, if you could call it this, the steady state? How is that succeeding? How is that failing? What's happening now as those things continue? I think it's moved not only big dots at the institution level, but I think it's, it's moved the culture in the operating room to a place where it's safe and legitimate and authorized and encouraged to speak up, which is to be able to point out things that could be better. And that at the organizational level, the comfort um, to be that transparent um, in a high-risk environment. And then being ready to come back behind this work and say that the resources that we need to make this better will be forthcoming. When we were able to, in our metrics, show that by systematically unraveling recurring defects and making improvements that other things were happening within the system. The number of labor hours to create a surgical case dropping, the amount of cases that we could do in the operating room across a day being able to go up, and some of the other flow and financial returns on this work. That became very important as a way to continue to have thrust and investment to make some of the changes, which, which were hard won. As you think about others of us trying to step into this space, uh, how others of us might start or sustain a process like this that we're in, I'd like to turn for a moment to the Institute for Health Improvement Psychology of Change Framework, which has a lot of different marvelous elements. And of course, as an organizational behavior scholar, I uh, geek out on all of this and so enjoyed your amazing white paper, Kate, that you wrote with your colleague. But what I'd like to do is ask you both if you could unpack a little bit for us three aspects of it. So the change framework focuses on activating people's agency Uh, which is a former sociology major. Uh, I know what that word means, but I think lots of people don't. So if you could unpack a little bit, what is agency? And then let's talk a little bit about how tapping into people's values 
uh, helped unleash intrinsic motivation. Because I think most of us struggle with the idea that we're trying to kind of get people to do things they don't want to do versus, as one of your colleagues talks about, how can we get these people to do the things they want to do? So Kate, can you help us a little bit with agency? Can you help us a little bit with unleashing intrinsic motivation? Sure, you got it. Agency is defined as the ability of an individual or group to choose to act with purpose. So I make a choice to act with purpose. That's me being activating my own agency, right? To do something that's my choice and my action. And it, that's made up of two components. So one, one thing I need is power. I need the ability to act in the first place, right? So a surgeon has a very unique ability that I do not and a certain type of power to, you know, solve people's problems in, in the OR and with a very technical set of skills. That's the ability to act with purpose in that setting. The second part of agency is courage. The surgeon has to have the emotional resources to choose to act in the face of difficulty and uncertainty. Surgeons exercise courage all the time in facing very uncertain moments in the operating room. Well, the same thing goes with the use of the checklist. People's agency individually and as a group, a team working together, they can choose to act with purpose to use the checklist. The ability to use the checklist, their power, that's not too hard to learn. With some training and some practice, they can really build the power to use the checklist. The big question in this effort is about courage. It's about their will. It's about the emotional resources they have to choose to act in the first place. And so as improvers, as uh, clinicians working to, you know, improve the, the state of affairs for our, our patients on the basis of evidence-based improvement, we know the technical side, as Dr. Rose suggested, and the, the harder part is the emotional resources to choose to act not only alone, but with one another. And so unleashing uh, people's intrinsic motivation is about tapping into the sources of their values and their motivation to galvanize those commitments to act. And we have some really good news, which is, and we've known this in organizational science for a long time, intrinsic motivation, which is really doing something for the inherent satisfaction that engaging in that activity provides, is a much more powerful form of motivation than extrinsic motivation which is doing something because it leads to some kind of outcome like a reward or a recognition or a, an avoidance of punishment. Yet, ironically, in our health system, we often set things up to either punish or to incentivize certain behaviors, you know, to comply versus uh, on an intrinsic motivation standpoint to commit. And so unleashing intrinsic motivation is about generating conditions for many people to access and harness their commitment, their intrinsic motivation to take forward an action on the basis of the inherent value that they experience in that activity, which means connecting them to the, their values and interests, just as Mike described, and how the, the activity itself can help them meet those values. So, Michael, I noticed as I was doing some research for this conversation that part of your responsibility now also is around wellness and resilience. And as I listen to Kate's story, I find myself thinking about the dilemmas and tensions that I see, particularly in the perioperative environment across our hospitals with people being asked to 
work long hours, improve throughput, experiencing life certainly as having a lot of production pressure. In contrast, when I hear the words that Kate just spoke about things that are most valuable to people, their intrinsic motivation, words like power, words like courage, to me, those seem to be an important wellspring for each of us in finding meaning in our life. When I'm doing things that I really love and care about, I'm way more motivated. I'm way happier. I'm less, I feel less resentment. I feel less burnout. So I somehow think that this concept of agency and intrinsic motivation is important for patient outcomes, but it also seems to me that it's very important for provider wellness and performance. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about yeah, that. Yeah, I, I think absolutely. And I, I think it is part of that thrust of agency, which is can I actually do something that makes a difference? And does this matter? And one of the things that uh, was embedded in this work was putting some metrics to, did people feel confident in this workplace? Would they want to be treated as a patient there? And you can imagine that if you, people could see it early on in this project, if if a quarter of the cases, somebody, one or another member of the team said there was something we could have done that would have been better, there's something that we knew or should have, could have known that would have made a difference, and we were falling short on that, who could possibly feel good about that workplace and who could feel good about their quality of life? And what if the cases were taking twice as long to do because of the workarounds and the distraction? I think that is a, a really important uh, management and leadership point on any project, that at the end of the day, the work has got to make a difference in the working lives of the people that are there for it to be sustainable. And, and I believe that's the vital part of this recipe, that leaving those distractions and those defects unattended, having people feel that that was normal. Maybe it's normal that there should be this number of workarounds. Thank heavens uh, this nurse or that surgeon or that anesthesiologist did that at just the right time and that harm didn't reach the patient. That shouldn't be left unattended. And so it was vital in this work, I think, that it became self-sustaining because people recognize that making that kind of investment at an individual level and aligning themselves with other people in the operating room to come up with the solutions and implement them was improving things for everybody. Kate Hilton, Michael Rose, would love to kind of wrap up our conversation with your take on two things. One, those of us in the simulation and quality and safety and education linked communities often struggle with some of these same challenges of getting people to own change initiatives that we think are valuable and useful. I think it's not restricted to the simulation community. I think there are others. So I'm wondering, what are some takeaways or guidance for action that you might leave us with? Or if it's a question that you think we should be asking ourselves, that would also be great. But Practically speaking, where would you guide us at the end of this conversation? There was a technical feature to the surgical debriefing component of this checklist that we implemented, which was we didn't define what we wanted people to convey 
or weigh in on. We didn't give them a list of things and said, tell us if this happened, this happened, that happened, or we're interested in these and not necessarily in those. We made that free text in free range. I'd like to say that was intentional. Uh, I think it's just something that we've learned after the fact that really what that then did was we were hearing what mattered to the people in the rooms as compared to what is it that we think we should ask them to tell us that are part of our theories of the case. So what we're hearing from Mike is that he understood to expect resistance if he took an approach in which he told people what to do. Do you like to be told what to do? How does that feel? Do your, do your children like to be told what to do? I think it's a good example of a litmus test, right? But instead... What, Definitely not. <laughs> yeah, what he's saying is, well, what happens when you ask a question and then you back up and get out of your own way and you listen? And you take some time to listen. And you take some time to ask questions that connect people to their values. And you take some time to then respond thoughtfully to what their interests are in a way that helps them meet their interests. And what that took was a relational strategy that went hand in hand with an operational strategy. And that relational strategy took time. But the question for those who are, you know, committed to how they're doing things the way they're doing things now and feel that they have no time, but they're unhappy with the results that they're getting. Do you want to stick with the results that you're getting or do you want to disrupt your own patterns of behavior and in fact, look at your, the own change that you might want to make in taking change forward, which is what Mike did. He was taking a leap in faith of trying a different way to engage people. It did not come easily. It was not his first instinct. It's not the way that they normally did things. But as they got on that bike and they, you know, tested relationally a PDSA around what it took to connect with people and bring them in, they took the time to basically build a dual operating system. This is what John Cotter describes it at Harvard. He, he talks about how organizations that are most effective have, sure, the formal traditional hierarchy that most health systems have. But effective ones that are agile and moving to change and improvement develop a dual operating system in which people are connected, not just through their heads around what they're supposed to do because they should, but their hearts because of why they want to and activating many leaders across the system at many levels, as Mike and his colleagues did across many different stakeholder groups in that OR. And as a result, people, as we've discussed, then began to say, well, I, I can commit doing this. But not only that, I'll talk to five or six other people and that, that I have some social capital with, and I'll engage them around what they care about. And I'll engage them and tell they did this for over two years till they talked to all 900 staff. Right? That took time, but they had a new relationship with one another and taking this forward. And when we think about sort of that contagious virtual cycle, you're hoping to get people in, that then gave them the courage emotional resources to exercise their own power about how to improve things when they saw something in a debrief that they thought, well, we could do something about that. Let's create this other improvement effort. And so they created a culture of safety around this. And uh, it's really, really important, you know, from an organizational development standpoint to recognize that in building a dual operating system, it might take time, but it then saves a tremendous amount of time as Mike's um, outcomes remind us around you know, the $4 million annually in savings from the economic return of hours annually, annually um, due to reduction of hours per case, right? 
and the productivity that that generates. There is um, good evidence, at least in Mike's story, around um, the return on investment of taking that time, not only for outcomes, but then, as you've mentioned, for culture change and uh, addressing burnout and, and creating joy. Thank you so much. So that has been a wonderful conversation with Dr. Michael Rose and Kate Hilton about unifying head and heart, if I may say that, thinking about operations as well as how do we activate people's emotion and values in linking up something as technical and as important as quality and safety indicators in a perioperative environment to people's deepest values about why are they healthcare practitioners. So thank you both very much so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. This has been a special production of the Center for Medical Simulation, a healthcare nonprofit focused on patient safety and quality improvement. Learn more about us at www.harvardmedsim.org. Thanks so much for listening.